Going back to Acts, we're picking up where we left off. We took a few weeks off for our observance of Advent, and now we're back to our study going through the book of Acts. We left off in chapter 9, where we were introduced to the amazing story of this man named Saul, that we've heard many of his words already read from the New Testament this morning. But at this point in the story, Saul was a professional persecutor of Christians. He was a Pharisee whose job it was to go around and round up Christians and bind them in chains and lead them back to Jerusalem so that they might stand trial before the high priests because they were a follower and worshiper of this guy named Jesus. And he loved his job. And he was very good at his job. And so at one point, he is given orders to go away to Damascus to do the very same thing. And so he he heads toward Damascus, the capital city of Samaria. And as he's on his way, as we learned in the first part of chapter 9, Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the ascended Christ, shows up to him on that road in a blinding light. And in the course of that event, Saul is converted. He realizes tragically that he has been working against God. And he repents of that. And he trusts in Christ. And God gives him new life in Christ. He saves him. He reconciles him. He redeems him. And we were struck in that story by the amazing grace of God that if God could save a man like that, that he could save anyone. But the story of Saul is just beginning in our study of Acts. And this morning we cover the second part of the story of this man named Saul. And in this second part of the story, Luke chronicles what happens next. And what happens next is that we begin to see what a difference this makes in Saul's life. We begin to see in Saul's life some of the evidences of his regeneration. In the first 18 or 19 verses of chapter 9, we're we're told about his conversion. We're told that he repents. We're told that he trusts in Jesus. We're told that he's converted and that the Holy Spirit now fills him. This is all a report to us. This is a narrative that that this has happened to Saul. This is the thing that he has done. But now, in the next 11 or 12 verses that we'll cover this morning, we're not just told about his regeneration in Christ. We're told of what it looks like in his life. And we begin to see some of the evidences. And that's what verses 19 through 31 will be about for us this morning. Some evidences of regeneration. That if someone has genuinely repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from what they deserve because of their sin and rebellion against God, and that now the Holy Spirit lives in them, that as a result of that, these are some of the things that we ought to expect to see in their life. But there's something else that's happening here. Not only is Luke giving us a list of some of the evidences of regeneration in Saul, but he's also telling us how God was preparing Saul for his next ministry 
assignment. You see, God didn't just save Saul on the road to Damascus so that he would stop persecuting Christians. No, he had a new job for Saul, a new ministry, a new work. And that new work was to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And since that was the new ministry that God had planned for Saul, it stands to reason that now God would spend time preparing Saul for that new work. And so both of those things are happening in this passage. And I want us to bear both of those things in mind, keep both of those things in mind as we walk through this text this morning. We're being given here evidences of Saul's transformation. We're told about it, and now we see it. Evidences that, that he truly is a Pharisee turned apostle, that, that he is the, the persecutor that's now a proclaimer. Now we see the change in his life. But also, we're being shown how God was preparing Saul for his new work of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. So we're going to begin... I'll actually back up to verse 18. We're going to pick up right at the tail end of the story of his conversion and then read through verse 31. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose up and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this very same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the privilege the honor that it is to gather as your people in your presence today corporately to worship you. And Father, thank you for the opportunity now to hear from you, from your word. Thank you for this book that we hold in our hands. Forgive us for taking it so lightly. Thank you for what it is, your very breath to us. 
And we ask now that you speak to us from it. Not just so that we would know a bit more about it and what it means, but so that you might change us through what it says. And so we ask that you would do just that. Nothing less than that, Lord. Change us to look more like Jesus as a result of what you have for us in your word. And do that, Father, for your own glory, that you might be magnified in us and through us, corporately and individually. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Saul, at the end of where we covered last time that we were in Acts, is already in Damascus. After being converted on the road, he was blinded. He was led into the city by those who were traveling with him to a man named Ananias, whom God led to to put his hands on him and pray for him, and he regained his sight. And so he's already in the city. And so the, the story this morning picks up right where that left off. And the verses 19 through 25 take place in that city where Saul immediately, he says, began preaching the gospel. And it ends with him narrowly escaping a plot to kill him for having done so. And then the remainder of our passage for this morning in verses 26 through 31 take place back in Jerusalem, where Saul has this interaction with the apostles who were there, and he also proclaims the gospel boldly in that city, also faces another plot to kill him, and also narrowly escapes that plot by escaping, this time back to his hometown of Tarsus. And so that's the, that's the flow of the narrative in this passage, from Damascus to Jerusalem and then off to Tarsus. And the focus is on this guy named Saul and both his regeneration as well as his preparation for ministry. So let's look first at these evidences of his regeneration that we see here. As a result of what we're told about his conversion in the first 18 or 19 verses in chapter 9, his repenting of sin, his, his trusting in Jesus as his only hope, the fact that the Holy Spirit now not only indwells him but fills him, now as a result of that, what do we see in his life? He provides us with evidences that that was real. Five evidences of his regeneration. Five evidences that the Holy Spirit really is in him. And, and, I, and I hope that we walk away with this, what we're intended to walk away from, from this. And, and that is that these evidences, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, these ought to be things that are in us and growing in us day after day, year after year. If these are the evidences of new life in Christ, is there enough of evidence in your life to convict you of being regenerated? What are the evidences of regeneration in Saul's life? First, we see a desire in him to gather with other believers. He has a desire to gather with other people who call themselves followers of Christ. And it happens right away. The second half of verse 19, it says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. He wanted to be with them. And in, when he gets to Jerusalem, verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He had a new desire to be with, to gather with those who called themselves Christians. 
He knew that he needed the support, encouragement, and accountability of other believers. And so he sought it out. He desired to be with other followers of Jesus. Now, we have to wrap our minds around the fact that this was a radical transformation in Saul's life, right? This was a fundamental change in his desire. Previously, he desired to imprison and kill those who followed the name of Christ. And now, he desires to hang out with them. Previously, he wanted to judge them. Now, he wants to join them. And this is because he is now filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is in him, now his desires have begun to change. Now he wants to hang out with Christians. When his spirit was dead, he desired to have them bound and led away to prison. But, but, but now because the Holy Spirit of God is in him and, and he has new life in Christ, what was previously dead is now alive. Now he wants to bind himself to them instead of leading them away bound to prison. When the Holy Spirit gives new life to a sinner whose spirit is dead, that person begins to grow in their love for and desire to be with God's people. People who otherwise had no hope of life. A desire to be with others who likewise have been raised from death to life. And if someone has no desire whatsoever to be with God's people, then one must question whether the Holy Spirit is really in them or not. I'm not talking about being an extrovert or an introvert. I'm talking about recognizing that you need other believers in your life. Other people who believe what you believe and love what you love. Who share a common faith and mission. I'm talking about recognizing that we live in a world that is opposed to both our faith and our mission. And so we need others around us who are likewise fighting to remain faithful and holy and on mission. I'm talking about liking people and wanting to hang out with people who are different from you, and who, apart from the gospel, have no reason to like you in return. Think, think about Saul in this particular situation. As he desired, as his desires were changing to, to be with the disciples at Damascus, I'm not sure they returned the favor. I'm sure that those disciples were more than just a bit hesitant about liking him in return because of his previous reputation as one who killed Christians. I'm sure that at first, they probably wanted to hold him at an arm's distance. But because they had a common faith in Jesus, Paul, Saul, wanted to hang with them. Do you have a desire to gather with God's people? Is there a desire in you to to be with God's people, whether it's the gathering of God's people corporately in worship on Sunday morning or, or whether it's smaller gatherings in our base groups and homes throughout the week or whether it's just simply gathering with, with one another individually, one-on-one -on -one throughout the week. 
Do you have any desire for that whatsoever? Friend, if not, if, if you have no desire to be with God's people whatsoever, then one has to wonder whether or not the Holy Spirit is truly in you. But if, on the other hand, you, you have a desire to gather with other believers, to be with others who follow Christ, but from time to time you find that desire waxing and waning with time and circumstances and whatever else may be going on in you or around you, then maybe that's because when you look inside your own soul, when you look inside your own life, perhaps it's because there's too much of you in you and not enough of Christ that's in you. You see, your flesh and mind does not want to be challenged by other believers. Nor does it want to be responsible for being the one to have to challenge other believers. Our flesh, our sin nature, doesn't want to be in a position of need, where we need other people, where we are in some way, in some manner, dependent on others for help. And part of growing in Christ is subduing that flesh, subduing our sin nature, fighting against it, and letting Christ reign in us more and more. And so if your desire to gather with other believers is diminishing, then maybe you need less of you in you, and you need more of Christ in you. How's that going to happen in this next year? What will you do to have less of you in you Less of your flesh in you and more of Christ in you. To live less by the flesh and more by the Spirit. A second evidence of Saul's regeneration is a commitment to proclaim Jesus as Christ. Look at verse 20. Immediately, I love that, immediately in Damascus, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. Verse 22 Saul was confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that Jesus was the Christ. He, he, he was into apologetics immediately, not persecuting Christ, but proving that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 27, Barnabas tells the apostles in Jerusalem how, how at Damascus he saw him and he preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. And then in the next verse, verse 28, there in, in Jerusalem, Saul also preaches boldly in the name of the Lord there in Jerusalem as well. You see, previously he was committed to persecuting those who trusted in the name of Jesus. And now, now that the Holy Spirit is in him, his commitments have changed. His commitments have been modified. Now he's committed to proclaiming the name of Jesus. You see, when the holy God of the universe, the sovereign Lord of the universe, grants us repentance of our sins, leads us across the line of faith, reconciles us back to himself, gives us new life in him, puts his spirit in us, not only do our desires change, but our commitments begin to change. And one of those commitments is the commitment to proclaim Jesus as Lord. To share with others the good news about Jesus Christ. To tell them 
who Jesus really is, that he died for them on the cross, and that he alone deserves their allegiance as the Lord of lords and King of kings. We have a newfound commitment to share this with others. When the Holy Spirit gives us new life in Christ, we will begin to grow in our commitment to proclaim this good news to those who desperately need to hear it. This is why Jesus said to his early followers, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. A commitment to follow Jesus is a commitment to become a fisher of men. To see ourselves as a missionary whose responsibility it is to hold out the gospel of Jesus Christ to our family, friends, neighbors, and co-workers. And if you feel no commitment whatsoever to do this, if you sense no commitment on your part whatsoever to tell others around you in your spheres of influence that Jesus is Lord, then it might be because the Holy Spirit isn't really in you at all. But most of us who do claim Christ as Lord, most of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, we, we know that we're supposed to be committed to this, right? But we struggle. We struggle with fear rejection we struggle with ignorance we, we struggle with that absolutely sat satanic mentality that we ought to to just mind our own business and leave religion out of it you see our flesh is sinful prideful and fearful and so we need to subdue our flesh and have a greater faith in Christ and a greater commitment to trust and obey the scriptures that tell us that the Holy Spirit is now in us by faith in Christ and that he has been put in us to empower us to, as Jesus said at the beginning of Acts, be his witnesses, to be his witnesses. He's empowered us to do that. Today's January 1st, first day of a new year. What if all of us in this room who know Jesus Christ as Lord recommit ourselves in this new year to be obedient in this, to be faithful missionaries where he's put us, where we live, work, and play? That 2023 would be the year where we surrender afresh to the marching orders of our King Jesus and subdue our fleshly fear and selfishness and begin to be faithfully, faithful proclaimers of the good news that he's given us to those whom, he got, whom God puts in our path. I pray that that would be the case in my life and in yours and in our church's life. Third evidence of regeneration that we see in Saul here is a transformation that's noticeable by others. This one is a bit broad, admittedly, and it includes much of what we've already said that that when we come to faith in Christ, when the Spirit is truly in us, we begin to change in our desires and our commitments. But the key here is that it's noticeable to others. Look at verse 21. Luke writes that all who heard him, what did they hear? They heard him proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He writes that all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this very same purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? You see, they knew the Saul before the Damascus road. And this guy that they're seeing in front of him now is a, is a 
is a whole new Saul. He's a different person. Look at verse 26. The disciples in Jerusalem also knew the Saul before the road to Damascus. And so Luke tells us that they were afraid of him because of that. They knew that Saul. And so they were afraid of him when he came back to Jerusalem. But, but Barnabas stands up in verse 27 and he says to them, in essence, this is a different Saul. He's a new guy. He's a brand new person. Trust me, I saw it. And then they saw it for themselves as they saw this Saul begin to proclaim and preach the gospel boldly on the streets of Jerusalem. He's different. You see, Saul had a reputation. He was known for something. As he would later write, as Paul, in Galatians 1, verse 13, he told them, for you have heard of my former life. In other words, you, you've heard of my reputation, right? You, you know what I was like. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. That was his reputation. That was, that's what he was known for. But now that the Holy Spirit of God is in him, he's got a new reputation. Now he's being known for something completely different. You see, if someone claims to follow Jesus as Lord, and, and they had a former life, right? Not, not, not that they came to faith as a six-year-old or a seven-year-old, you know, a really young person, like where, where they didn't have a former life. But if somebody comes to faith in Jesus Christ and they had a former reputation, a, a former life, and nobody recognizes any change in them, no, nobody ever stands up and advocates on their behalf like Barnabas did here for Saul and, and says, wait a second, this is a new guy. I, I saw who he was before. He's, he's different now. She's, she's a new person. It's not the same. If nobody, nobody ever says about them, hey, aren't you the guy that used to do this or that? If there is no noticeable difference, no observable transformation whatsoever in that person, then one has to wonder whether the Holy Spirit is truly in them or not. In Matthew's gospel, in Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching his disciples how to recognize false prophets. And what does he say? He says, you, you'll know them by their fruit. Same is true for recognizing genuine followers of Christ. You'll know them by their fruit. So where's the fruit? Listen, an observable life change, a noticeable transformation in someone is not the root of their faith but it is the fruit of their faith. And if there is no fruit, then doesn't it stand to reason that there might not be a root? If you point to a tree and you tell me it's an apple tree, but it only ever produces oranges, then I must conclude that it's not an apple tree at all. And if you point to a person, you tell me that they're a follower of Christ, but their life never produces the fruit of a follower of Christ, then on what basis can they be called a follower of Christ? 
those who knew Saul began to see something different in him. They began to see a transformation of his life. Began to see that he was different and changed. And those who know us, they ought to see a change as well. They ought to see a difference also. That we are not the same person that we were before Jesus gave us new life in Christ. We're a a new person with new desires and new commitments and new attitudes and new behaviors and a new mission and purpose in life. And friend, if you're here this morning and you've not come to faith in Christ, but you're considering doing so, please understand, he will not leave you unchanged. He will change you. You'll be a new person, a a different person, one that, that... Over time, those who know you now will say that they hardly recognize you. They're a different person. And friend, that change will absolutely be for the better. But hear me on this. If you're not willing to change, then you're not ready to be saved. Because salvation without transformation is impossible. An apple tree that get changed, gets cha- transformed into an orange tree but, but never produces oranges is just fiction, right? It's just fantasy. And an unbeliever being transformed into a believer without ever producing the fruit of a believer is likewise fiction. It's impossible. Fourth evidence of regeneration in Saul we see that he begins to develop an appetite for spiritual growth. He has an appetite to grow spiritually. In verse 19, at the end of that conversion story, in the opening verses of chapter 9, in the first part of verse 19, he says, taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I take that to mean that he was literally and physically hungry, And he ate food and he was strengthened. And that stands to reason. He had not eaten for three days. So it stands to reason that when he finally does eat, he is physically strengthened. Physical food nourished and strengthened his physical body. But then in verse 22, we're told that Saul increased all the more in strength. And this time, it's not referring to physical nourishment and physical strength but spiritual nourishment and spiritual strength. Because the Holy Spirit is now in him, he now has an appetite, not just for physical nourishment, but for spiritual nourishment. And this is normal for a healthy organism, right? Healthy organisms grow. Why? Because they are nourished. And unhealthy organisms don't grow that they they weaken they decline they fail to thrive why because they're not nourished remember what jesus told nicodemus in john chapter 3 unless you're born again you cannot enter the kingdom of god to be born again when we when we trust in christ as our only hope when we turn from our sin and self-rule and and turn to jesus christ and his accomplishment on the cross as the only and sufficient payment for the payment we deserve to pay because of our own rebellion against god 
When the Holy Spirit gets placed in us, we get, we get saved, we are redeemed, we are converted, we have new life in Christ. When this happens, we become a new person. We, we're, we're, we're born again. We are new little babies in Christ. And as infants in Christ, we are weak and vulnerable and in desperate need of nourishment for our spiritual growth. Now think about real physical little infants you know you don't have to teach a little baby to be hungry you you don't have to teach them that they are in need of sustenance god gives them an appetite right and, and they tell us that they have an appetite because they, they cry, right? They, they, they cry, and, and they cry because they're, they're hungry. They, they need sustenance. God gives them that appetite. And, and, and that appetite for spiritual nourishment provides them the nourishment. That, that nourishment is the very means for them growing healthily and, and developing as a healthy baby. And the same is true for us as baby Christians. You might have to teach us how to be nourished. You never have to teach a baby that they need nourishment. You might have to teach them, in some cases you have to teach them how to, to nourish themselves, but you don't have to teach them that they need it. Same is true for us. You might have to teach a baby Christian, how to be nourished, but you don't have to teach them that they need spiritual nourishment. God has given them that spiritual appetite for spiritual nourishment. They've been given this built-in hunger for spiritual nourishment that they need for growing healthily as a baby Christian and growing spiritually. But if someone has absolutely no appetite, for spiritual nourishment. Absolutely no hunger at all to grow spiritually, then one has to wonder whether the Holy Spirit is really in them or not. But for most of us, it's not that we don't have an appetite for spiritual nourishment. But in so many cases, it's that we fill our soul with so much junk food that doesn't really satisfy that spiritual hunger and need for spiritual nourishment, that we really don't realize how famished we are for that stuff. Again, friend, today's a new day, a new year. Why not make this the year that we resolve, that you resolve, to stop filling our lives and filling up our soul with so much junk food, whatever it is. And instead, begin to nourish our souls more and more with God's word and the scriptures, God's presence and prayer, and God's people in biblical community. Whether you know it or not, Christian, you are famished for those things. And no amount of junk food that's out there in the world floating around is ever going to satisfy that hunger for those things. The fifth of these evidences of regeneration in Saul is that he now faced opposition from the world. 
Saul was opposed in both Damascus and in Jerusalem. Look at verses 23 and 24. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. And then in verse 29, in Jerusalem, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. So he was trying to reach them with the gospel, but they were seeking to kill him. One of the evidences of regeneration is opposition from the world. And, and didn't Jesus promise us this? Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, Jesus says they will prosecute, persecute you as well. It's a promise. Jesus says, as Matthew records in Matthew 10, verses 16 and following, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of, of wolves. Now just think for a second. What kind of shepherd says that? Right? What kind of shepherd says, Behold, guys, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. What kind of shepherd says that? I'll tell you what kind of shepherd says that. A shepherd that will protect those sheep in the midst of the wolves. And a shepherd that has other sheep that are not of the fold, that he will do anything to ensure to bring them back. And so this shepherd says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He tells that to his disciples. He tells that to us. And so he goes on. He says, so be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men. Beware of, the, of, of those out there in the world. Why? Because they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before, other govern, before governors and kings for my sake. Why? To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Then he goes on in that passage. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus promises that those who follow him will be opposed by the world as a result of two things. As a result of being sent as sheep in the midst of wolves and as a result of bearing witness to him in that world. Prior to the Damascus Road, Saul was different. Saul sought the applause of the world. The world being his little world of, of Jewish elitism. He, he sought the applause of the world. He sought to improve his position in the world. He sought to advance himself in the world. But now he found himself opposed by the world. What about you? Does the world applaud you or oppose you? Do you face opposition from the world because of your faith in Jesus because you have been sent into the world as a sheep in the midst of wolves and because you're faithfully bearing witness to him in that world? I'm not talking about facing opposition because you're a conservative. I'm not talking about facing opposition because you're a Republican. Friend, I'm not even talking about facing opposition because you oppose the gender confusion of the world around us. I'm not talking about op being opposed because you oppose 
abortion. Both of those things are things which, as followers of Jesus Christ, as believers in his word, we ought to oppose. But I'm not talking here about facing opposition from the world because of the moral degeneracy of the world. I'm talking about facing opposition of the wor- from the world because you publicly and unashamedly stand for Jesus Christ and proclaim his gospel. That you bear witness of him in the world. I don't. Not as much as I think I should. And I have to ask myself, why? Why is that? Why don't I face more opposition from the world? Is it because I'm not being sent? Or is it because I'm not bearing witness? Is it because I don't publicly stand for Christ as much as I should? And don't proclaim his gospel as much as I should? Or is it because my life is so insulated from the world that, that, that I'm, not, I'm not really in the world enough to bear witness of Christ to the world. And if that's the case, friend, it doesn't mean I'm not a Christian. It just means that maybe I have too much of me in me and not enough of Christ in me. It might mean that I'm operating more out of my flesh and less out of that Holy Spirit that he put in me. And I think that's how we should apply this passage to our lives as believers in Christ. Whether it's that we face very little or no opposition from the world around us. Or whether that's our, that, that it's our appetite for spiritual growth is, has waxed and waned over the years. Or whether there's not much observable fruit in our lives right now. Or if our commitment to proclaim the gospel has diminished or our desire to gather with other believers has waned. To the degree that any of these are true of you is the degree that you probably have too much of you in you and not enough of Christ in you. You see, these things were all a result of the Holy Spirit not only indwelling but filling Saul, empowering his life and ministry. But if we're not relying on the Spirit in us to to change our desires and our commitments and our attitudes and our actions and our appetites, then we're relying on ourselves. And left to ourselves, we're going to have the same desires, the same commitments, the same attitudes, the same actions, and the same mission and purpose in life. And if that's the case, then our response is to surrender afresh to him, to surrender ourselves to him, and to let Christ reign in us, to focus on the spiritual disciplines of scripture intake and prayer and gathering with God's people in community so that we're not just indwelt by the Spirit, but we are filled and empowered by the Spirit. But if we go through this list of evidences from Saul and we say, yeah, I don't, I don't see any of those in my life. I have no desire to gather with God's people. I have no commitment to proclaim the gospel, speak with others about Jesus. I have no fruit of change in my life. I have no appetite for spiritual nourishment. I'm not being opposed by the world at all. If that's your response to these evidences, then it could be because the Holy Spirit is not in you. And if that's the case for you, then your response is that you need to be rescued by Jesus 
You need to be saved. Because the Holy Spirit is not in you. And you still stand before a holy God with all of your sin and rebellion against Him on your shoulders. Your only hope is to throw yourself at the mercy of God, repent of those sins, and trust that what Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary in dying and rising three days later, He did to pay the price for your sins. To trust in Him as your only hope. And he will remove that weight and that burden of your rebellion and what you deserve because of it. But as I said at the outset, there's more going on here than just a list of evidences of regeneration. We also see here that God is preparing Saul for ministry. And those two things really do go together. There's evidences of regeneration and there is preparation for serving him in ministry. And for every believer in, the, in this room, both of those things are happening at the same time. God is changing you to look more like his son Jesus, and God is preparing you to serve him in whatever comes next for you. That's what's happening to Saul. These verses not only give us a list of the transformation and what his, how his life began to look different, but also how he was using this time to prepare Saul for a lifetime of serving him as an apostle an apostle and how God is preparing Saul is often how he prepares us so let me close with three ways that we see here how God is preparing Saul for service first of all through seclusion sometimes God removes us from ministry or he has us enter a holding pattern before ministry can begin in order to prepare us for ministry twice Saul was removed from what he thought was very successful and very fruitful ministry. Once in Damascus and once in Jerusalem. And the reason for that removal was preparation. The first came during his time in Damascus. Luke doesn't talk about it in this passage, but but Paul himself talks about it in Galatians. He talks about how God removed him. During his time in Damascus, he removed him away to Arabia. Why? To prepare him. For ministry the second time of seclusion for Saul takes place at the end of our passage in verse 30 when the brothers sent him by boat to Tarsus you see Saul had returned to Jerusalem he was proclaiming the gospel on the streets he had what he thought was a great ministry opportunity a seemingly successful and thriving ministry but God sent him back home to Tarsus and we don't hear from the Saul again for some eight to ten years until chapter 11 when we see him come back at the behest of Barnabas to head off to Antioch and begin his missionary journeys. God removed Saul from the limelight. He removed him from active ministry for a time of preparation for what was to come next. Listen, if we're going to serve the Lord, we need time and space to be prepared to serve him. And sometimes that means that God will hit pause on what we think is a great ministry opportunity. Sometimes he will redirect us from what we think is a great way to serve him. And that pause or that redirect may mean removal or seclusion for a time, but that time is a time of preparation. Secondly, God prepares Saul through adversity. We see adversity both in his time at Damascus as well as his short time back in Jerusalem. Both of them 
abruptly interrupt by adversity. The adversities that Saul faced were plots to kill him. But God uses the furnace of affliction as a testing environment to test our faith for a life of God-glorifying service. Sometimes that is suffering, sometimes that is persecution, sometimes it's just failure. But even failure itself is a great classroom to prepare us for what comes next. And then thirdly and lastly, God prepared Saul through community. Whether it was the disciples there in Damascus that he sought to gather himself with and be encouraged by and who eventually helped him escape a plot of murder by lowering him through a window in the wall. Or whether it's the friendship of Barnabas in Jerusalem who, who, who came along his side and advocated for him before the apostles and told them that he was a changed man. Or whether it's the, the, the brothers in Jerusalem who later helped him escape another murderous plot and arranged for his travel to Tarsus. Saul was the recipient of brotherly love and affection and encouragement and admonishment and challenge and accountability. The, the, the biblical community around Saul was absolutely critical to his preparation for the ministry that was to come next for him, which is what God was preparing him for. But this isn't just for apostleship and pastors and elders and the like. This is for all of us who desire to serve the Lord in our life. All of us who know Christ as Lord are being prepared for a work of ministry that God has prepared us to work in. And so it stands to reason that he would seek to prepare us for that work that he has planned for us. That's what this Saul, later Paul, himself would write about in Ephesians. After he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, the gift of God, not as a result, lest anyone should boast. Not a result of works. But then he says in verse 10, the same guy. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, he's, he's prepared a work for us, and so he's going to prepare us for that work. So what happened to Saul? The gospel changed him. The gospel absolutely altered his eternal destiny. But not just that. It didn't just save him from his sin. It transformed his life. He was a new person with new desires, new commitments, new appetites, new behaviors, and a new mission. And that's what the gospel does to us, church. It transforms us. It saves us. But it also changes us. Not just our eternal destiny, but where we become a different person than we were before Christ saved us. We're a new person with new desires and new commitments and new attitudes and new appetites and new behaviors and a new mission and purpose in life. And because we've been given that new mission and purpose in life, God uses things like seclusion and adversity and biblical community to prepare us for active engagement in that mission. 
And so what results? What, what, what results and what happens when God's people are bearing the fruit of repentance and regeneration in their life and when they are willingly submitting themselves to be prepared for serving Christ on mission? What happens? Verse 31 happens. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The result of saints being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, demonstrating and displaying in their lives tangible evidences of being regenerated in Christ and having new life, and willingly being prepared by God for and engaged in ministry results in a healthy, vibrant, and thriving church that gives glory to God and penetrates the, dark, the darkness of the world around them with the light of the gospel. And it's my prayer, and hopefully yours as well, that that's what God will do in us and through us beginning this year. Let's pray. As we close in a time of prayer, two questions for you. Is there too much of you in you and not enough of Jesus? If so, I would challenge you as we close in prayer to confess that before the Lord and ask Him for His help in helping you to live less by your flesh and more by the spirit that he placed in you. But the second question is, is Jesus in you at all? I'm not asking you whether you regularly attend church. I'm not asking you if you have a lot of Christian friends. I'm not asking you, do you have a Bible at home? I'm asking you, have you ever repented of your sin and rebellion against God and professed faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope for rescue from what you deserve because of your sin against Him? If not, I beg of you to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for showing us what it looks like when someone is radically changed by the gospel. Lord, we hold ourselves up to the, <laughs> the Apostle Paul and we're all, we all fall short. But as we see glimpses of some of these evidences of regeneration, Lord, we ask that you would cause these things to more and more be fleshed out in our life. We thank you that if you've placed the Holy Spirit in us, we are a new person. It's so easy for us to get caught up in this world and the cares of this world and the desires of that old man, that old flesh, to where we don't really look a whole lot different. I pray that this year would be different for us, Lord, and that you would change us, and that when we get to January 1st of 2024, we will be able to look back and say, Lord, thank you so much for making me look more like Jesus this year than I did last year. And Father, we come before you and we ask that in, for your glory and for your namesake that you might reclaim worshipers 
in this room this morning. Those who are far from you, those who are considering faith in you, Lord, lead them across that line of faith to trust in Jesus Christ. Put your Holy Spirit in them. Make them a new person. Help them to connect with a a body of faith like us where they will be encouraged to grow. Father, may you be glorified in the reclamation of sinners and of saints this morning. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.